This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Martin Rees. He's a fellow of Trinity College and emeritus professor of cosmology and astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. I spoke with him on May 9, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in Carnegie Hall Recording Studio in New York City. This interview is included in our show, Cosmic Origami and What We Don't Know. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Oh, thank you much. Okay. You're welcome. <coughs> and the uh, ideal distance between you and the microphone is about six inches. Six inches, okay. Mm. 15 centimeters. Nice. Okay, so. Depends how you look at it. <coughs> um, <coughs> it's comfortable for you. Mm, it's fine. here for a while, so. Okay. Great. Fine. Yeah. Can you hear your own voice through the headphones? Um, hello, hello. Hello. Lord Rees? Hello, Martin Rees here. Hi, hi hello. Krista Tippett. Hello, hi. <laughs> Welcome. Good to be on your show. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to this uh, space, this media space. Mm, uh, well, good, good to be here. I'm in New York at the moment. Okay. You sound a little soft to me, which is uh, something you I'm noting. You sound a bit soft for... to me, too, so I don't know okay. if I can turn it up. So I think we may need some volume <coughs> uh, adjustments maybe on both ends. Mm. Yep. Can I answer any questions for you while while they're doing that? Do you have any questions of me? I don't think so. I gather we've got up to an hour and a half. Yes, altogether. And we'll, is that right? we'll try to keep it closer to an hour, but um, okay. mm-hmm. we'd like mm-hmm. to to leave it uh, uh, leave some free space for in case that you know something unexpected yeah, well, in fact, happens. I'm, <coughs> I'm free to eleven thirty, so okay. it doesn't matter. Right. That's no. great. <coughs> Congratulations on the Templeton Prize. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> so, yeah, so Chris, he's still still really soft. Yeah, I'll give you some more. Okay. <coughs> my voice, uh, I'm 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 fine. I mean, I'm hearing my. Um, I can hear you all right. All but, right. Uh, can you hear me? That's better. Yes. Okay. Mm. Okay. Um, let's talk about something mundane while they're adjusting. Um, can you tell me when we? Are we actually starting yet or not? Um, I think we... So now, Chris, now he's quite loud. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'm, well, uh, let's... Um, I, I want to ask you a mundane question before we actually officially get started while they adjust oh, okay, the yeah, volume yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they can get a sound check. So uh, t- just tell okay. me what what you had for breakfast today. Okay, well, I went to the... <coughs> Sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. Okay. <coughs> do you have some water there? Yeah, I do. Okay, yeah. great. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> Um, no, I was staying in. <coughs> oh dear, I was staying in some rather posh hotel and had a very big breakfast, which I don't <laughs> normally have at home. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. and you know, um, we we will uh, we do get to take our time and we can edit. So if you need to okay. stop and clear your throat, <coughs> that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can get back to it. And we will, mm-hmm. the, with the wonders of modern <coughs> technology, we can make it sound right. like you didn't have anything. In okay. Your <laughs> um, right. Okay. So Chris, how are we doing? Can we can we start? Christy, would you just talk for me one more time? Yeah. Um, you want to know what I had for breakfast? No, um, that's good. I was just making sure I wasn't hearing you bounce back. So I think we're in good shape. Okay. All right. Looks like we can go yeah. then. Okay. Um, so let me just say uh, one of the things I'd like to do in this conversation is uh, uh, talk about what's most important to you and, and kind of let mm-hmm. people in on not just what you think and what you know, but how you think. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that from all of your well, writing... I try and, to think anyway. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, I also sense that, that that's important to you, that uh, you know, you've said science is not just for scientists, and I, mm-hmm. I think that that, uh, that, that, that that can be valuable. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I would, I'd like to start where I start with everyone, uh, whether they are, wherever they are on the spectrum of atheism or religion, and just ask, uh, was there a religious or a spiritual background to your childhood? Um. Not particularly. My uh, parents attended church, but I don't think they had any firm religious beliefs. But uh, I was exposed to the liturgy of the English church mm-hmm. um, at the school I went to. Right. It's, I think, something that's not so uh, easy for Americans to understand, that the Church of England is a birthright, <laughs> as much <laughs> as it's a choice, right? I mean, it's, it's in the fabric of culture. Uh, well, it's true that... Uh, people who have no particular religious beliefs will say, if asked, that they are members of the C of E, mm-hmm. the Church of England, um, and of course uh, some are firm adherents, but of course it does have a special role in our national life, uh, as many TV viewers will have seen on the occasion of the Royal Wedding That's just right. recently. That's right. I remember I lived in England for a while, and um, I, I, I think maybe it was A.N. Wilson, someone like that, who said, uh, and I think a lot of people agreed with this, I, 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 I don't believe in God, but I believe in the church. <laughs> well, I think that that is true, that many people who don't have any religious beliefs uh, um, support the uh, church as an institution mm-hmm. um, and feel it's important for national occasions and would like to be buried according right. to its rights. Yes. So uh, tell me mm. when and how uh, cosmology captured your imagination. Can you trace that? Well, <clears throat> it didn't happen early. I um, studied uh, math and science at school um, and then uh, at university and uh, I decided I wanted to do some kind of science um, as a career and uh, by a series of lucky accidents actually I ended up doing astronomy and cosmology. There were lucky accidents in two respects. Uh, First um, I was fortunate to get a very charismatic uh, advisor and when you're starting a PhD the key thing is to get the right person to advise and encourage you and I was very lucky in that respect and the second reason I was lucky was that this was uh, way back in the um, mid-1960s and that was the time when the subject was just opening up the first good evidence that there was a big bang Mm. was coming online uh, the first evidence for black holes etc. So it was a very good time to be entering a subject because when the subject's new, the experience of the old guys is at a heavy discount, as it were, and uh, it's easy for a young person who's committed to make an impact fairly quickly. And so I was lucky to be able to do that and to be in a good environment where I was able to make contributions to some of these new ideas. And, you know, one of the ways you talk about one of the a focus of your, uh, your scientific passion, one of the things that occupies you is this deep structure of space and time, which is wonderfully intriguing language. And, and that's also what you mean by the deep structure of space and time is, is something even that uh, amidst those great developments of the 1960s, no one had any idea, right, of many aspects of this. No, that's right. I mean, there were lots of ideas which were speculative back at that time, which have now been uh, settled. And, of course, the corollary of that is that there are many ideas which we now speculate about today, 
which could not even have been formulated 40 years ago. So mm -hmm. issues like the overall scale of the universe and the fundamental nature of space and time, which people worry about now, couldn't really have been formulated back then because we just didn't know enough. So most of my work actually has not been on these sort of rarefied topics, but really trying to understand particular things we find in the sky to try and make sense of them because we discover all kinds of extraordinary objects and we want to see if we can explain them on the basis of the physical laws that we think we've established here on Earth in the lab. So, so that's really most of what I've been doing, just as a geophysicist tries to understand the Earth right. and how it's evolved on the basis of what we know about physics and materials. So an astrophysicist tries to understand the uh, things in the sky in terms of physics and also, of course, um, to try and put it in some grand perspective. We know how uh, Earth has evolved geologically and how life has evolved on it, but one thing that... Uh, we then want to ask is, how did the Earth come to be? Mm -hmm. How did the Earth form? How did the Sun form? How can we put these in some grander cosmic context? These are the kind of things that I've been uh, worrying about. Uh, and I think even this idea uh, that is as much a popular idea as, as perhaps it was a scientific idea, that space is empty. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, when you, you know, the deep structure of space and time includes things that we really don't understand, right? I mean, with names for, like, deep, uh, dark matter, uh, Right. Well, one of the things we've learnt is that in the universe there's obviously stars and galaxies which are made up of atoms, which, so far as we know, are just like the atoms we can study in the lab. But there's also some stuff out there which is very important because it exerts a strong gravitational force, uh, which is a kind of particle which we don't know about and haven't yet mm -hmm. discovered here on Earth. So the nature of the so-called dark matter is a big issue for physics and for astronomy at the moment. But there's also another rather deeper mystery, which is related to the nature of space itself. There's evidence which has come about in the last 10 years or so that even empty space, when you take away all the dark matter and all the atoms, still exerts a kind of force. It exerts a sort of push or tension hmm. on everything. And this therefore means that uh, even empty space has a kind of structure. And we don't understand that at all. In fact, uh, uh, most of us would guess that uh, empty space does have a structure, but on a tiny, tiny scale, a scale a billion, billion times smaller than an atomic nucleus. Huh. And we would have to understand uh, space on that tiny scale to understand its structure. We're used to the idea that you can't chop up any solid indefinitely, you get down to individual atoms. We now think that if you take space or even intervals of time, you can't chop them up arbitrarily. But the uh, scale of the atoms of space and time, as it were, is much, much smaller than anything we can directly measure. So that's why uh, this is um, a rather speculative area of science, because it's hard to relate the ideas to experiments, because they're so far f beyond the range where we can do experiments. But uh, uh, there's fascinating ideas, and one of the fascinating ideas is that if you could chop up space on a very tiny scale, you would find that what we think of as just a little point in space is actually a tightly wrapped origami of extra dimensions. Mm, We're right, used to the right. idea of three dimensions of space, backwards and forwards, left and right, up and down. Uh, but uh, if you 
looked at space on a tiny scale, you would find evidence for extra dimensions. Mm -hmm. The analogy is often given of this is that if you look at a um, hose pipe from a long way away, you think it's a one-dimensional structure, a line, but if you get close up to it, you realise it's really uh, uh, got a thickness and is a three-dimensional structure. Likewise, we think that on this very, very tiny scale, there may be extra dimensions over and above the uh, three that we're familiar with. And uh, that indicates the mathematical challenge of trying to understand space at the very deepest level. It's a mathematical challenge and it's also an imaginative challenge, right? I mean, it it almost uh, exceeds the capacities of human imagination to think about. Um, Well, of course, um, uh, the human imagination needs to be channeled by experimental observations. And the trouble here is that we don't really have enough observations. But uh, just to add a footnote to what I just said... Mm -hmm. um, uh, Many people believe that there are these extra dimensions which we don't perceive because they're rolled up very tightly. There's another idea uh, which is even more fascinating, in my opinion, which is that uh, um, there may be extra dimensions which are not rolled up. And indeed, this leads to the fascinating idea that there may be um, other universes, other regions of space-time, which are separate from ours um, because uh, they're embedded in a common higher dimension. Mm-hmm. To give an analogy of this, I mean, if you imagine um, a whole lot of uh, bugs crawling around on a big sheet of paper, uh, they may think of that as their sort of two-dimensional universe. They can just go in, in two directions on right. it. And then if you imagine another sheet of paper parallel to the first one and other bugs on that, then they think they're in a separate two-dimensional space and they're not aware of the third dimension, so they wouldn't know that there's the other parallel sheet. And some people think that one dimension up, uh, we are in that sort of predicament. They think that uh, um, there may be, as it were, another universe, maybe just a few millimetres away from ours. Mm. But if those millimetres are measured in a fourth spatial dimension and we're imprisoned in our three, we wouldn't know about it. (laughs) And so that's just one way in which the uh, uh, space and time of our everyday experience uh, may uh, uh, need to be transcended when we get down to scales both very, very small compared to everyday experience and to scales very, very large compared to everyday experience. And um, it seems to me that, that another focus of your work on your thinking is is finding ways to think about uh, unifying the big and the small, right, or, or understanding laws that might... Uh, that they might have in common? Is that, one way, is that a way to say it? Well, it's true that uh, um, one aim of science is to understand the basic atomic structure of matter and, as I said, the structure of space mm-hmm. on a still smaller scale and also to understand the cosmos. And uh, these are really two separate domains of study in general because uh, um, on the micro scale, uh, the basic... Uh, uh, physics involves the so-called quantum theory, the uncertainty principle and all that, the idea that nature is slightly fuzzy on small scales, whereas on the large scales, uh, the key theory is Einstein's theory, uh, which tells us about gravity on large scales. And so um, the very small is the world of the quantum, the very large is the world of gravity and Einstein. And Normally, um, we don't need to worry about these two things at the same time. I mean, if you're a chemist thinking about a molecule, um, you uh, don't worry about the gravitational force between the atoms in that molecule because gravity is so weak on that scale. On the other hand, if you're an astronomer worrying about the orbits of planets, you don't 
have to uh, take account of the quantum fuzziness right. in the orbits because the uh, planets are so big. But uh, if you want to understand the very beginning of our universe, um, the very earliest stage of the Big Bang, when everything was squeezed very small and dense, uh, we do need to consider simultaneously both quantum effects and gravitational effects. And that's why we need a theory which does unify uh, those two basic theories. In, Quantum in, theory and mm-hmm. gravity are the two pillars of 20th century uh, physics, but we now need, uh, in the 21st century, to develop a all-embracing theory that combines the two. And you've also said that... Uh that you want to bring that that in addition to the cosmic scales and the micro world, there's a, a mm-hmm. third frontier of the very complex, and you include very interestingly uh, human beings uh, in that on that frontier of the very complex, the most well, complex uh, entities. Well, we first know. of all, I mean, human beings are the most complicated things we know about in the universe, <laughs> um, and uh, um, uh, I think. Uh, if you talk to physicists, they sometimes uh, talk about uh, a unified theory of the very large and the very small, uh, colloquially, as a theory of everything. Right. They often use that phrase uh-huh. if you look at some popular books. And that's, I think, rather sort of hubristic and misleading right. um, because uh, um, uh, the theory that they're uh, seeking is, of course, uh, an important intellectual quest. But uh, if you ask what 99% of scientists are doing, they're not worrying about subatomic scales, nor about the cosmos. Uh, They're trying to understand things on the everyday scale, especially things that are alive. Mm. And they're very, very complicated. And the challenge uh, of uh, understanding living things and complicated materials um, is uh, a challenge of understanding the very complex. They're not held up at all because we don't have a theory of uh, quantum gravity. So most uh, scientists are, of course, working on what I call the third frontier, which is the very complex. And uh, this uh, involves, you know, all the things in the everyday world um, which are very large compared to atoms. Indeed, they're complicated because they have layer upon layer of structure in them. But they're very small compared to uh, stars and planets, and therefore they're not crushed by gravity. So the uh, study of the uh, very complex is, of course, what most scientists are doing. I mean, you've also you've made this provocative statement that it's it's possible to say definitive things about stars more than it's possible to say definitive things uh, about uh, aspects of life like dieting and childcare. Well, indeed, I think uh, <laughs> uh, even e- even a s- uh, small insect is much more complicated than a star because a star is a huge ball of gas and it's crushed by gravity and is so hot that uh, uh, all chemicals are broken down into their atomic constituents. There's Mm no complex structure, whereas even the smallest insect has a layer upon layer of structure, proteins, cells and all the rest of it. And so the smallest living thing is indeed more complicated uh, than a star. And uh, also... To go back to your point, um, everything about humans is very complicated. In fact, uh, it, it may seem ironic that I can talk with some confidence about uh, uh, a galaxy a billion light years away yes. and, uh, and what it's made of. Uh, whereas, and I would hope that uh, I can give you evidence so you take what I say seriously. On the other hand, you're very foolish if you take seriously what anyone tells you about diet or childcare, mm. because uh, um, they change their opinions, as you know, every year. 
Uh, it's not that the people working in those fields are less competent. It's that anything to do with uh, uh, humans and their behaviour and their environment is uh, far more complicated hmm. than uh, the cosmos or the micro world. Hmm. I want to ask you about something you, you, that you said. I want to understand this better. You, you said that if Newton and Einstein are icons of unification, Darwin is, this, is the icon of this complexity that we're discussing. You, you've also said that uh, the Darwinian pace of evolution and extinction is speeding up. What do you mean by that, and how how do you uh, measure that? I've never heard anyone say that. Well, of course, uh, we know that uh, um, humans have evolved by uh, a Darwinian process of natural selection over a time of um, nearly four billion years since the Earth was young, and uh, species have evolved (coughs) and become extinct, each species lasting maybe a million years or sometimes longer. Um, But... One important thing which we learn from astronomy is that uh, the time lying ahead is at least as long as the time that's elapsed up till now. The sun is less than halfway through its life, Uh, the Earth has uh, um, billions of years ahead of it, and the universe may go on forever. And I think this is very important uh, to everyone because um, this makes me very sceptical about any claim that humans are in any sense, the culmination of evolution. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, the most complex organism that has evolved. <clears throat> but since the time lying ahead is just as long, uh, then uh, post-human evolution here on Earth and far beyond uh, could be far more complex and wonderful uh, than uh, uh, the biosphere we have here and of which we are a part. So uh, that's just saying that there's plenty of time for Darwinian evolution. Darwin himself realised this. He said in one of his works that uh, no existing species would survive into the distant future. Hmm. But the other point which uh, strengthens this claim that we are not the culmination is that any future evolution uh, of humans is not going to be determined by uh, natural selection on the very slow time scale that led to uh, our own emergence from uh, the common ancestor of us and the apes. Now, how do we, uh, how do we know that? How, how well, because uh, it's going to be driven by technology, and we know okay. uh, that... Uh, so uh, we, we are, are speeding it up. We are speeding it up, and so any uh, um, changes to humans um, will come about uh, um, as a result of applications of... Uh, um, genetics or cyborg Mm, technology, mm, mm. uh, man-machine symbiosis and things like that. Um, And uh, this can happen on the timescale of technological advance, which is far, far shorter. Mm. And indeed, uh, um, this uh, raises a number of questions. I think, first of all, the ethical question of how much uh, of such experimentation should be allowed... Right. And secondly, uh, whether it will happen, if not on Earth, perhaps when uh, communities have escaped beyond the Earth. And, of course, a few centuries from now, uh, there may be uh, small communities living independently of the Earth um, on other planets or freely floating in space. And uh, uh, I think if there are communities out there, then I would say good luck to them in modifying their descendants to be more adapted to that alien environment using all the techniques that we will then have. So one can well imagine that on the timescale of centuries, the post-human era will begin. Right. It's it's interesting to think about that because, um, you know, one of the things I've discussed with other scientists and also um, bio- people who, who know Darwin uh, 
is that one of the things that's hard about the theory of evolution for people to grasp is simply to think in terms of that magnitude of time, right? That the glacial pace defies uh, our ability to accept these ideas. But then we're all living in this moment where, as you say, the pace of technology is not really faster, it's dizzying. (laughs) Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, it's nice to imagine, you know, what uh, would have been seen by some aliens who've been watching the Earth for its entire history. Suppose they, uh, that uh, aliens had had for four billion years the uh, iconic picture of the Earth from space, which we've, of course, had since the Apollo moon landings, mm-hmm. you know, showing mm-hmm. the Earth as a delicate blue uh, planet uh, in a dark background. Uh, we've had that image for 40 years. But supposing that some aliens have been watching us for billions of years... Uh, what would they have seen? They'd have seen very gradual changes um, as uh, ice ages came and went and as species evolved and the vegetation changed. But then suddenly, a few hundred years ago, they'd have detected much more rapid changes due to the impact of humans on the environment. Mm. And then they'd have detected... uh, uh, radio waves coming from the Earth, the integrated effect of TVs and radars and all the rest of it. They'd have detected uh, uh, an anomalous sudden rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because of uh, human activities. And they would have detected, amazingly, for the very first time in four billion years, um, uh, little projectiles leaving the Earth, going into orbit around it, the first spacecraft. And so... uh, they would have observed all these things happening in um, essentially a few centuries, which is uh, um, just uh, kind a of a tiny blip, <laughs> blip because uh-huh. the Earth has existed for 45 million centuries. Right, right. So things are really accelerating, and that makes it even harder to predict uh, what can happen given the huge expanse that lies ahead. So, so what we're you know all of this is uh, is evoking um for me is is also something that you uh, i think are very articulate about which is um the way uh without overtly being philosophical or theological or ethical um science especially modern science especially something like cosmology um raises insights and questions that are relevant philosoph- philosophically ethically theologically well, very yeah. much so. I mean, mm-hmm. I think uh, um, we should distinguish the philosophy and theology on the one hand from the ethics because obviously uh, all the advances in science uh, lead to a range of applications, some of which are benign, others less so. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, uh, we entered uh, this era uh, with the nuclear age in particular and we're going to have more and more uh, um, difficult choices as to how we uh, apply science um, so that we can benefit from it, but avoid the downsides. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously there are more and more issues where science is uh, um, going to uh, allow us to make choices, and we've got to make those choices widely. And this, incidentally, is uh, uh, one reason why it's very important that the entire wide public has some feel for science, because it shouldn't be just scientists who decide how science is applied. That's something for all citizens and politicians to decide. Um, They've got to have a feel for science to make wise decisions. But uh, separate from the uh, applications of science, uh, there's also the uh, general way in which um, uh, our perception of our place in nature is changed by science. And obviously... uh, obviously, uh, uh, Darwin uh, changed this to some extent, and I think uh, uh, the um, uh, awareness that we are just one step 
in a very long-term process which uh, is not at its culmination but maybe only at a halfway stage. That's, in my opinion, an important new insight that uh, uh, we in astronomy can provide to uh, uh, the wide inquiring public. Um, and uh, also, of course, the, um, uh, the vast extent of uh, the, uh, uh, the universe. Um, of course, um, one mustn't overreact to, to that last point because uh, um, we shouldn't be just impressed by size. Uh, it could be that vast though the universe is, um, our Earth is a very special place. It may be one of the uh, very few places where uh, life has uh, evolved to a complex biosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the Earth, though tiny, uh, may nonetheless be important uh, not just to us humans, uh, but on a cosmic scale. And this, of course, leads to another fascinating question which uh, uh, is engaging astronomers now, uh, which is the question of uh, uh, whether there is life in other parts of the uh, the cosmos. Uh, there have been very important developments in the last decade um, leading to the awareness that uh, most of the stars we can see in the sky aren't just twinkly points of light. Uh, most of them are uh, orbited by a retinue of planets, just as the uh, sun is orbited by uh, uh, the Earth and the other planets we're familiar with, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, etc. And this, of course... Uh, uh, makes the night sky much more interesting, but also opens up the question of whether uh, on any of these other planets uh, life got started mm -hmm. um, as it did here on Earth, and whether having got started it uh, evolved in any places to uh, complex life of a kind that we could recognise as intelligent. I mean, this is, uh, of course, a staple of science fiction, but uh, these are issues which are now an important part of science. Right. So not only thinking, uh, giving us perspective on our place in the cosmos, but re raising anew the question of whether we are alone in the universe. That's Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. Um, it, it also seems to me that, um, I mean, you've also made some pretty dramatic statements that you think mankind has a 50-50 chance of surviving the century. Some have said this is a scientific version of apocalyptic <laughs> <laughs> reasoning. Um, tell, me, tell me what you mean by that. Well, um, I didn't quite say anything as scary as that. You uh, didn't. Uh, All right. That's what was well, reported. Well, I said, uh, well, I said a 50% chance of a severe setback to okay. civilization. All right. Okay. I don't think we wipe ourselves out. I mean, that's very mm -hmm. unlikely. But uh, I did say uh, in a book a few years ago, which was called Our Final Century in Britain and Our Final Hour in America. Um, that, um, uh, that we like things to about, happen more. Yes, it does. Our well, sense it, of time and history. That says something about the difference in uh, uh, the time spans that yes. Brits and Americans think on, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, what, I, what I did say was that uh, um, there were uh, severe uh, threats um, and uh, I did think it was only a 50-50 chance that we would get to the century having avoided them all. And, uh, uh, of course, one threat which we've been under for the last 50 years is of a nuclear catastrophe. Right. Um, that's somewhat in abeyance with the end of the Cold War because although there's a higher risk than ever of a few nuclear weapons going off in the Middle East or somewhere... Um, there's less risk than there was in the uh, 60s and 70s of tens of thousands going off and producing a real global catastrophe. But, of course, um, 
50 years from now, there may be a new standoff between new superpowers uh, handled less well or less luckily than the Cold War was. Mm -hmm. So that's one threat. But also uh, there are various other kinds of... uh, uh, of concerns we have in the 21st century um, because uh, the one thing which is absolutely clear is that the population of the world is rising and that each person is uh, making more uh, impact on the environment of the planet, we're consuming more resources, affecting the climate, the vegetation, etc. And we've got to ensure that we don't produce uh, a situation which irreversibly damages uh, the Earth for future generations. So that's one set of concerns. Um, but another concern I have is that uh, I think the world's becoming less governable because mm. Mm. individuals are far more empowered than they were in the past by technology. Um, uh, the kind of people who now design computer viruses may one day be able to design real viruses. And uh, uh, in our interconnected right. world, even computer viruses could be more and more dangerous. And so uh, I'm worried that a few weirdos or mm-hmm. disaffected extremists... Um, can do far more damage in the future than they've been able to up till now because they are more empowered. And to cope with this uh, and ensure security without impacting on our on our freedom and privacy is, I think, going to be an ever-growing challenge to governments. So that's the sort of theme I had in this book. Right. So, you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about a statement that Einstein made in the early 20th century as he, you know, to his great dismay, watched chemists and physicists create weapons of mass destruction. And he said that science in his generation was, he likened it to a a razor blade in the hands of a three-year-old. Um and, it, you know, we we know a lot about uh, – we, we can look back on this moment of splitting the atom, and we can see that that had incredible destructive potential. I mean, it still does. Also incredible healing and life-giving potential. It it, it occurs to me that, that – and I, I wonder what you think about this moment in time where we're living through some of these uh, choices and possibilities, as you say, like with climate. Um, there's a great kind of awareness – of the the duel of the double-edged sword of these things um, as they're unfolding in real time. Um, I think what you're also saying, though, is that this doesn't just need to be a moment of scientists uh, taking seriously the implications of their work, but that that citizens, that everyone has a stake in this and also has some power over technology that previously was not so dispersed. Yes, absolutely, of course, Einstein's statement is even more relevant today and uh, I quote another one H.G. Wells said that uh, uh, this century would be a a race between education and catastrophe and we've got to make sure that education wins and uh, indeed uh, the stakes are higher than ever before uh, in that the the potential offered by science is of course uh, uh, brighter than it ever was but uh, the downsides are more potentially uh, catastrophic. I mean, I think we shouldn't be uh, be too gloomy because uh, um, despite uh, the risks and the threats that uh, uh, have hung over us for the last 50 years, I think there's no doubt that uh, for most people in the world there's never been a better time to be alive. Mm-hmm. There are at least uh, half the world's population who are uh, living a, a life that's been hugely transformed by... Um, uh, 
modern communications, for instance. Uh, you know, mobile phones now pervade Africa and India to a tremendous benefit of the population. Yes. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and that's a kind of uh, economic growth which benefits the developing as well as the developed world and also which is sparing of energy and natural resources. So uh, let's uh, not forget the benefits of uh, uh, the communication revolution um, and, of course, of uh, improved health uh, for most of the world's people. Um, but, uh, of course, even now we can see a big gap between uh, what actually happens... Uh, and what could happen, because uh, uh, we know that the world's bottom billion living on uh, less than a dollar or a dollar and a half a day uh, and without access to clean water, etc., could easily have their uh, predicament alleviated if the will were there. Right, and uh, right. I think it's deplorable. Uh, in fact, um, Jeffrey Sachs pointed out that um, uh, the wealth of the thousand richest people on the planet could more than solve those problems, mm -hmm. and it isn't. And so I think uh, this is uh, um, already showing the gap between the way the world is and the way the world could be, and uh, the concern is that even though uh, the uh, potential um, to uh, make the world healthy, provide a good quality of life for everyone um, and uh, uh, feed everyone is being enhanced by science, uh, whether this will happen, of course, uh, depends on political choices. Um, and here, um, as you were saying, um, it's very important that although the scientists can provide the briefing, as it were, it's not the scientists who should uh, uh, be making these broader decisions um, because uh, uh, when um, the issues um, get beyond science itself, uh, they provide no special expertise and any decision a politician has to make mm -hmm. uh, involves um, probably some technical or scientific elements, but it also involves uh, economics, uh, um, ethics and many other considerations uh, where uh, um, other members of the public have a right to an equal say. And that's why, as I said earlier, I think scientists uh, do have an obligation to engage with the public and politicians to make sure that at least the decisions are made on the basis of the best science. Well, and I wonder if if we couldn't say that, that, that this also is a new, uh, I don't know, an evolutionary, like a cultural development that you, for example, and others... <clears throat> As a scientist, as a public figure, um, you've made a conscious choice uh, to turn your to not not merely pay attention to cosmology's grand questions, but also to these earthly matters of social policy. I mean, you know, in your wreath lectures, you give some. In addition to the, these issues um, that you just named, these huge issues of poverty, I mean, you 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 named some very practical questions that our scientific develop, uh, advances are raising that. That, and, and, you know, you are advocating for a, a smarter, uh, more thoughtful public dialogue about this. So, you know, how will lengthening lifespans affect society? Who should access the readout of our personal genetic code? Mm -hmm. Should the law allow designer babies? Th that's right. These are all questions which uh, um, uh, the public uh, should uh, mm. raise them on the agenda because, of course, the other uh, problem uh, is that most of these issues uh, which are important for the world and for society are long-term. And in politics, the urgent always trumps the important, yes, yes. especially when the electoral cycle is short. And so I think one thing that scientists can do uh, is to uh, raise their profile and make sure that uh, the public doesn't forget uh, these uh, longer-term issues because uh, um, although... Uh, in some economic decisions, we apply a big discount rate and 
don't care what happens 10 or 20 years ahead when we're considering uh, uh, the future of uh, the planet then we should surely uh, rate the welfare of our grandchildren as high as our own in other words apply a low discount rate and I think scientists need to bang on about the importance of considering these uh, long term effects so I think uh, that is really uh, something which scientists should do but I think uh, uh, we have some good role models among scientists I think uh, um, among the most impressive individuals I've met in my life have been some of the great physicists mm. who, the, who, who do you were, think of? Well, I mean, I'd mentioned two who I was privileged to know. Uh, One was uh, Hans Bethe, who was a a great physicist who um, died a few years ago at the age of 98. And he was uh, someone who did uh, great work in nuclear physics back in the 1930s. He was head of a theoretical division at Los Alamos during the uh, World War II, the development of the first uh, atomic bomb. But uh, he went back to academia, remained a productive scientist until he was over 90 years old but at the same time he was engaged in uh, uh, politics, Uh, he felt it was his obligation to help to uh, uh, control the power he had helped unleash namely the uh, the power of the nucleus and uh, he uh, devoted his energies throughout his long life uh, to uh, this aim, as did also um, Joseph Rotblatt, another uh, scientist who I was privileged to know, based in England. Uh, They, I think, set a wonderful example of citizen scientists by uh, uh, feeling it was their obligation um, to do what they could uh, to ensure uh, that uh, uh, their discoveries were benignly applied. Of course, they didn't have immense success. I mean, I think they are having success because uh, uh, it's now Uh, accepted that we should uh, uh, aim to um, cut down the number of nuclear weapons, if possible, to zero. In fact, uh, even President Obama in his speech in Prague last year said said that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so, uh, uh, that that is now a mainstream idea. Um, But I think uh, scientists should um, exert whatever influence they can, even though uh, they uh, won't always succeed, and even though, of course... uh, um, uh, other opinions are also equally valuable. To give an analogy, um, uh, if you're a parent, uh, you can't necessarily uh, control what happens to your teenage or adult children, um, but you're a poor parent if you don't care what happens to them. Mm -hmm. Likewise, uh, a scientist's ideas, a scientist's creations um, are these new theories Mm. and you're therefore a poor scientist if you don't care about Hmm. how your creations are applied. And so that's why scientists, I think, have a special obligation to express concern and to to warn or encourage uh, the wider public about the applications of the uh, ideas which they understand better than anyone. Hmm. Um, You you are atheist but very have been very vocal about not seeing science and religion as adversarial aspects of human life. I also sense that you're kind of agnostic on the idea of whether that means there should be all kinds of dialogue. But one thing that occurs to me in this discussion we're having now about uh, philosophical and moral uh, quandaries that are presented by science is that to me it really heightens the challenge also for theologians, um, religious leaders who are keepers of this these ancient traditions which have moral reasoning at their heart, 
to to also um, apply those and bring bring the depths of those into our public life in a different way. Well, indeed, I think uh, obviously all religious leaders need to be mindful of uh, uh, what uh, we have learnt about the world and the environment and about uh, uh, life through the advances of science. And uh, uh, these people are quite rightly regarded as influential leaders of opinion. And certainly in my own country, um, we have uh, the two leaders of the English church um, are uh, two individuals who I hugely respect. Mm -hmm. And the chief rabbi who I've uh, interviewed as well, who's... Weighs right, in yes. quite a lot on moral yes, issues. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking of the uh, the two archbishops as mm-hmm. uh, the ones who I most admire, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, and I think that's important. But uh, I think there are people who are not in any sense believers in religious dogma, um, like myself, who are glad that uh, there are these religious leaders who are speaking out. I should say that uh, um, I am uh, not a person who adheres to any religious dogma, and I think. The reason I can, uh, uh, the reason I take that view is that if science teaches me anything, it teaches me that uh, even simple things like an atom are fairly hard to understand, <laughs> and that makes me uh, sceptical of anyone who claims to have uh, the last word or a complete understanding of any deep aspect of reality. Right. I think the most we can hope for is some uh, incomplete and metaphorical. Uh, understanding um, and uh, uh, to share the mystery and wonder whether we're believers or not. Mm -hmm. And so I find myself very out of tune with uh, all dogmatic religions, which I suppose includes all the three Abrahamic religions, Um, although, of course, uh, I can see a closer affinity with Confucianism and uh, and, uh, Mm. um, systems of thought like that. You know, although I did once speak with a, an Anglican uh, theologian who's also a geneticist here in the United States. He's, he's British, but um, who, he's an Anglican priest. And he said that he likens the creeds of the church <clears throat> to operational hypotheses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, well, but some people do uh, decide to um, <laughs> behave as if some uh, right. something is true, and uh, uh, and they are of course entitled to do that. Yeah, mm. you know, I I also see all kinds of interesting um, echoes when when we talk about, uh, and I, I do think you you agree with this that I mean we're kind of talking around this that that the insights, uh, the perspective that science provides is. Is theologically can be theologically and spiritually evocative. Um, is that well? I think uh, scientists uh, share a sense of mystery and wonder mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the less dogmatic uh, um, religious believers, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I think uh, they provide an understanding of uh, the natural world which has to be incorporated in any system of religious belief. I also, uh, something that I'm very fascinated with in science, and, and it came out very loudly out <clears throat> again as I was reading all your many writings, um, this is not so much a, any kind of theological or philosophical principle, but there's a, there's a way in which scientific discovery um, is a very <clears throat> there's a lot of wisdom in the history of scientific discovery, which is a template for life 
even, as you say, this complex system of life, more than, more than the way we pretend some of our other disciplines are rational, like politics or economics. So, for example, what I'm thinking of there is that progress in science um, is, very, is always implicated with failure or with the unsettling, the overt unsettling of, uh, of, what, was once, of what was thought to be real and true. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, 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 science uh, doesn't advance in a very systematic way. Uh, it advances with sometimes two steps forward and one step back. And, and you know what I'm saying? Uh, That's also how life is. But we kind of oh, absolutely. We, we pretend yes. in many of our other academic disciplines that it's all about that progress is this arrow forward and science is yes. very honest. Well, uh, I, think that, I think that's true. And of course, um, although uh, um, scientists aim uh, to uh, discover some sort of objective truth which uh, uh, can be shared across all cultures. And in that sense, uh, science is the one truly global culture in that protons and proteins are the same in, uh, right. uh, in China and right. America, as it were. Um, uh, the way they come to their conclusions and uh, the way in which they prioritise particular areas of science uh, does clearly depend very much on their culture. I mean, some cultures are interested in certain things, some are interested in a quite different set of things. And so uh, the, uh, the rate at which different branches of science uh, advance, the way in which uh, some are heavily funded and others aren't, that depends on all kinds of uh, social factors. But the uh, end point of science is something which uh, aims uh, to be objective. But I think, um, uh, to go back to what you were saying, um, uh, I would agree with you that uh, um, there's a great similarity between the way scientists think and others do. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, pretentious uh, talk about the scientific method as though it's something special. But I don't think there's anything different between the way um, uh, a scientist thinks and works and the way, say... um, uh, a detective works trying to solve a mm. forensic case. You know, you're, you're you're trying to assess the evidence and uh, get things to fit into a pattern to decide how to weigh uh, seemingly contradictory bits of evidence, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think the way that I think is anything different from the way uh, people think doing any kind of uh, um, deductive or inductive reasoning in any other walk of life. Right, and that you may make may go in wrong directions, but in fact oh, that, that those may and reveal ways towards something that you couldn't see before. <laughs> absolutely, and, uh-huh. uh, and, and of course there are uh, the sort of revolutions <coughs> which uh, overthrow a whole body of ideas. Um, I think actually... Um, people slightly overstate how often these revolutions happen mm-hmm. uh, when we actually have to go back to the beginning. Uh, there, are, there are some, I mean, for instance, realising that the uh, Earth isn't the centre of the universe but the sun is, that was a big, big change, and I would say that uh, the quantum theory was another big change. Um, but uh, mostly what happens in science is that uh, um, new ideas are refinements and extensions of the old ones. For instance, I mean, Einstein didn't prove Newton was wrong. Um, Einstein uh, um, provided a theory which uh, had a wider range of applicability than Newton and gave us a deeper insight into what was going on to produce the gravitational force. But but Newton's theory is still good enough to... uh, um, to, to program rockets to fly to the planets. It's not been proved wrong. And that's more typical, actually. Uh, science advances and uh, old ideas get uh, absorbed in, uh, uh, into a more uh, extensive 
field of broader applicability. And that, incidentally, is a, a, a good hope for science, but people sometimes worry about science getting so complicated that uh, uh, it'll grind to a halt because there's too much to learn. Um, it's true that the amount of data is growing very fast and uh, we need computer methods to analyse it all, but the aim of science is to uh, unify uh, disparate ideas so we don't need to remember them all. I mean, we don't need to uh, record the fall of every apple because Newton told us they all fall the same way. And likewise, when you understand nature in increasingly general ways, then the number of separate things you have to remember goes down, not up. So that's why I don't think one should uh, expect that science will grind to a halt for that reason. It may grind to a halt for other reasons, like uh, some problems being just too difficult for us, but it won't grind to a halt because of information overload, in my opinion. Here's, you've written that you agree with another cosmologist who said, humility in the face of persistent great unknowns is the true philosophy that modern physics has to offer. And you know, there again, I think you're getting at human virtue as well as scientific virtue. Yes, this is my friend Joe Silk who said that, and mm-hmm. I think that's a very wise uh, statement, yes. Um, and uh, uh, this, this is why uh, I think we have to accept that there are... Uh, many uh, mysteries we haven't yet solved um, and uh, uh, we should be wary of people who have uh, 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 who make dogmatic statements uh, you know uh, sometimes uh, people especially uh, more fundamentalist religious people say uh, look you can't answer these questions can you uh, isn't that a failure of science? And I think our response to that should be, indeed we can't. We are just beginners, and these things are very complicated. We must accept the uncertainty and not sort of uh, uh, accept some sort of flip answer which has no credibility. Do you think so? You said you don't think science will grind to a halt because of complexity, but but it, 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 I do have the impression from some conversations with scientists that it, it, it seems, and to many people's surprise, that here at the dawn of the 21st century, where couple decades ago, it looked like a lot of some of these big issues would be tied up. I mean, does it seem like there are more unknowns or bigger ones um, at this moment or maybe than you expected when you started your 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 uh, scientific career? Well, I, I think um, uh, what 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 happens in science is that um, uh, as it advances, the uh, the frontiers uh, as it were, get more extensive and new questions come into focus just beyond the frontiers. Uh, many of the issues that were debated when I was starting my scientific career have now been settled and the issues we're now debating couldn't have been posed back then. So uh, science is a progressive enterprise in that sense in that the area of consensus grows and we compose uh, new new questions. Um, but I think at the, sa- at the same time, um, some... Uh, Areas advance fast and others advance slow, and we can't predict the rate of advance. I mean, this is true in technology, for instance. I mean, uh, um, when when I was young, um, I thought that we'd um, um, have bases on the moon now and we'd all be flying in supersonic planes. Did you? Uh, Uh And and, uh, many people did. And, of course, we're not doing that because there was no uh, economic or social motive to deploy the resources that way. On the other hand, uh, I think uh, um, something like um, uh, an, an, an iPad uh, uh, would have been thought magic even just 10 years ago. Yes. And, so, yes. and so the technology that's led to uh, mobile phones and GPS and iPads and all that has evolved and disseminated worldwide far faster. So in technology, um, it's uh, 
easier to predict the trend than to predict the rate. And some areas involve fast and some slow. Mm. But as far as science is concerned, I, I think in my field, um, uh, we have made rapid progress in a number of areas, but the one in which the progress has been fastest is actually in uh, uh, discovering planets around other stars. This is a field that didn't exist at all until 15 years ago and is now one of the most lively and rapidly developing fields of science. So uh, that's developing faster, whereas uh, uh, some of the um, uh, problems posed by uh, uh, sub-nuclear physics have been uh, uh, rather stagnating and haven't made as much progress as we'd hoped. I mean, you know, in your in your Templeton Award um, acceptance speech, you you named the bedrock nature of space and time, uh, mm. and the unification of cosmos and quantum as among scientists' great open frontiers. Yes, and I, I think sure, surely that might have surprised you forty years ago to know that that those might still feel like frontiers. Um, I don't know. I think we've got a. Uh, We've got a lot more evidence because uh, uh, the, the trouble with those theories is that uh, uh, the ways of testing them uh, are beyond the uh, powers of any experiment we can do here on Earth. Mm-hmm. So we have to rely on indirect evidence to test our theories. Um, but I, I think these theories um, are developing. I wouldn't like to bet how uh, long it'll take. I mean, I think that uh, um, going back to the problems in cosmology, um, I think that within a few years we may well know what the dark matter is made of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's some sort of particle we may discover it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the uh, uh, mysterious force in empty space, uh, I think is going to uh, be a bigger challenge. I would not be surprised if we don't understand that 50 years from now. I think that is a really big challenge because uh, that clearly involves a very, very elaborate mathematics and also um, very uh, uh, delicate experiments. You know, uh, you you very often in, in your speeches and your writing have used this analogy of... Um science's frontiers of as, uh, like the moments where ancient cartographers would come to the end of what they knew to be there yes. and they would inscribe there be dragons. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it also occurs to me, just as we're speaking, that right now, it's sort of on television, for example, there's this, you know, there, there are all these, uh, there's a lot of programming and a lot of it actually being produced in Britain as much as the U.S. Um, that goes that is it like this Game of Thrones, this new there's there's kind of semi science fiction, which is which is mm-hmm. which is also evokes these places beyond which uh, where you know there might be dragons, and I wonder if I I don't know I'm really thinking out loud if 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 that is in a sense kind of modern people um, somehow uh, by osmosis as much as education perhaps picking up this uh, this renewed. Uh, these renewed frontiers and mystery at the edges of human knowledge. Well, I think science fiction and these computer games do, in a sense, nourish and extend the imagination. And uh, uh, you know, I tell my students that uh, they probably do better to read good science fiction than second-rate science because huh. it's, uh, science fiction is more fun and no more likely to be wrong than the second-rate <laughs> science. Um, and uh, but, but, but I, I think you're quite right in saying that um, many people are familiar. Uh, through imaginative literature and computer games with uh, ideas of uh, worlds beyond our own, etc., etc. And uh, I think uh, this is uh, um, a good thing because uh, anything which uh, 
broadens our horizons in space and time away from the parochial concerns which dominate the political agenda, I think is a very good thing. Yeah, and I mean, even the notion of virtual reality perhaps making us be more receptive to some of these pretty far out things that you describe about perhaps the the, the uh, these origami these uh, yes. rolled up worlds uh, parallel universes that has always felt like the stuff of science fiction but is looking more like there might be something to it well that's right and I think um, also the, uh, the progress of science in the areas I work in is crucially dependent on uh, in effect computer models in a virtual world or a virtual universe mm-hmm. because we can't do experiments. Uh, we can uh, uh, only do make observations, um, but we can do experiments in the virtual world of our computer. For instance, um, we understand quite a lot about galaxies um, because we can observe them and we can also, um, in our computers, uh, work out what happens if they're crashed together, for instance, Mm. and uh, Mm. crashing stars together, making stars explode. And uh, we can do all this um, in our computer, um, speed it up uh, a billion, billion times compared to the real rate at which these things happen. So we can actually study these quite quickly. And then we look in the sky and see if the output of our calculation uh, resembles what we what we actually see. And that's the way in which we can make progress. We can uh, uh, look at something in the sky, uh, we can uh, run lots of uh, models in our computer and uh, see which one uh, uh, ends up most closely resembling what we observe. Uh, and that's the way in which we uh, gain confidence that we understand what's going on in a star or a galaxy. It's so, really uh, amazing, uh, isn't it? So uh, 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 the virtual world of our computer uh, is crucial in uh, advancing the subject, along with, uh, uh, of course, much better experiments. I mean, armchair theory doesn't get you very far by itself. We're no wiser than our predecessors were, but we do have much better instruments right. and much more powerful computers, and that's why uh, this subject has advanced so fast. So... You know, one of the things that that I've thought a lot about in the past few years, as I've talked to people about this science-religion divide and, you know, redefining that, reframing that notion, is that there are these flashpoints of certain scientific ideas. You know, evolution is one, is probably the big one. Um, But I... I, I, I think that we're just barely aware. We, we don't we don't impose into those kinds of discussions the fact that that in the twenty first century our lives are permeated with science and with scientific discoveries and and other um, you know medical technologies that save lives and save the lives of our children and family members that, that and that they all flow out of that same body of knowledge that same capacity to use uh, scientific instruments and reasoning. Of a few things that are that are frightening for people, um, I don't know how to, how would you react to that well, uh, idea. Well, I, I, I certainly agree that uh, some of the potential applications of science are frightening, and that's why we need uh, wide. Uh, uh, discussion of the ethics and what should be uh, allowed and what shouldn't. That's uh, that's very important. Um, but as regards future discoveries that may uh, affect our worldview in the way that uh, clearly Darwin did. Um, I suppose one possibility would be understanding more about uh, um, the brain and uh, 
how our attitudes and emotions are determined, that'll be one. And, of course, uh, close to my own field, uh, if we did discover intelligent life elsewhere, uh, that would make the universe much more interesting. Um, it would, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it would uh, require us to be rather more cosmically modest than we would have to be if we are the unique intelligence in the universe. But that's another thing that would clearly uh, have uh, an impact on uh, general culture. You know, I, I sense, um, I'd like to tease you out on this, because uh, uh, it's not something that I, you, uh, that at least I've found you've written, uh, written about overtly, but you, you note that um, among uh, cosmologists, people who deal with the universe on the scale that you do, astrophysicists, um, that they're, that the poles, and I, you know, I think, again, these poles uh, are what get us into trouble, but the poles are people who say, well, you study this universe and it's so unlikely that everything came together to create this hospitable biosphere, that there must be some purpose behind it, whether they call that God or not. And then there's another poll that says uh, it, it's a random accident. It's it's an inque- incredible, exquisite, random accident. I, I sense that you want to assume a place that's somewhere between those two things, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, well, I, I think, obviously, the fundamental laws of nature are a mystery. Um, and uh, um, one... Uh, Topic which I have written about is um, the question of uh, um, whether there are many big bangs or just one, mm-hmm. so-called multiverse idea, um, and uh, this does uh, uh, impact on what you've just said because uh, um, if there are many big bangs, then uh, it's possible that um, each big bang gives rise to a cosmos governed by different physical laws, where the strength of gravity is different, etc. And if that's the case, uh, then, of course, uh, um, there may be uh, universes governed by all conceivable sets of laws, and there will be some in which any specified fine-tuning will be fulfilled, and we naturally find ourselves in one of those. Okay. So, uh, so, so one idea is, is that if there are many universes, and if they are governed by um, um, different physical laws. If, in other words, what we call the physical laws are just parochial bylaws in our cosmic patch and the fundamental laws at a deeper level, uh, then uh, these uh, alleged coincidences would occasion no surprise. Uh, whereas if, uh, I, if, if those laws are indeed uh, unique, uh, then uh, the um, uh, fine-tuning that some people talk about mm-hmm. does occasion some surprise and uh, we just wouldn't know what to make of it. So does that leave you more uh, inclined to think of it as uh, a remarkable accident? Is that, well, uh, I, or that I, there I are ways this, to explain it as an, <laughs> yes, <laughs> as an uh, accident? Uh, well, I, I, I regard this as a, um, a question which is a, um, uh, a scientific question, mm-hmm. not a metaphysical question, albeit a very speculative scientific question. I think we do want to know um, how much... Uh, uh, is there in physical reality, as it were, beyond the part of the uh, universe we can see with our telescopes? Does it go much further? Um, Are there completely disconnected regions of space and time? And if so, um, are they all governed by the same physical laws? Or could it be that there are uh, different uh, um, um, physical laws, um, so that what we've called the universal laws are really just bylaws. And that, I think, is one of the uh, 
important questions. And incidentally, I think when we have this uh, unified theory uh, of the very large and the very small um, and the nature of space, it will help to settle that question because one of the uh, key questions is whether uh, there is, as it were, only one form of space or many different forms of space. Mm -hmm. That's uh, uh, an important question which string theorists worry about and that is very strongly linked to this question of whether the... uh, uh, um, things like the strength of gravity and the uh, mass of the electron are universal or whether they could, in principle, have different values elsewhere. And do you rule out um, the possibility of... or if, all of, if, this, if this unfolded in this way, would it for you rule out the possibility of purpose or of a, of a I don't know, creative intelligence or was Einstein mind behind the universe? Well, I, I mean, I think to be honest, I just don't understand what could be meant by purpose. I think uh, if there was a purpose, I wouldn't expect human brains to be able to understand it. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it is clear that uh, humans are just a stage in the emergence of uh, amazing complexity in the universe. Um, And uh, uh, I just think it's far too anthropomorphic to actually use the word purpose. Okay. Um, You have have, uh, often said that you're atheist, but you do participate in the liturgies of the church, that you appreciate the ritual and practice of religious tradition. Tell me what that means for you as a a human being. Well, it simply means that I grew up in a culture where there was uh, um, a uh, uh, dominant religion um, and uh, I'm happy to participate uh, in it, particularly because um, uh, it is associated with a a tradition of um, uh, architecture, literature, um, we're just celebrating the 400th anniversary of the King James's Bible, for instance, yes. which is something which has had a general impact on British culture, obviously, um, and uh, uh, the liturgical and musical and architectural tradition, uh, which uh, um, goes with the uh, uh, dominant religion in the UK, is something which I admire and would be sad to see decay. Uh, and uh, I uh, appreciate participation in... Uh, in in the services um, of of this religion um, without uh, accepting any dogma. And I'm sure if I'd been brought up in a different culture, um, I would have different views. I mean, if I was uh, um, in the Far East, I might be a Buddhist and I wouldn't believe in... uh, in a, in a uh, mm-hmm. no, but they believe in a god or an afterlife of the same kind as as, as Christians do. So I, I would say that uh, um, I participate in uh, this particular religious practice, but I see it as having no uh, um, absolute primacy. It's just a culture in which I grew up. Okay, it does strike me. It's it's always been interesting to me that. Um, about how scientists toss the word God around, though, even having said that. And you have echoed this question that Einstein would ask, you know, could God have made the world differently? Um, tell me what you think that is about. And, and clearly, I mean, even this famous Einstein quote of God does not play dice with the universe had nothing to do with God, right? It, had, it was not a theological statement or question. Um, yes. But so I, I'm very, I'm curious about this. How do you, so what function does this word God play in, in scientific vocabulary? Well, I mean, How do you explain let, that? Let me say, uh, I think it's, it's rather unfortunate that uh, Einstein used the word God because he meant Spinoza's God. He didn't mean the kind of God that uh, the Christians uh, um, believe. Uh, just as incidentally, I think it's a pity that he called his theory relativity. 
because that led to uh, uh, all kinds of uh, irrelevant cultural spin-offs into oh. relativity and ethics, etc. Because, uh, in fact, uh, the essence of Einstein's theory is that the, uh, the laws of physics are the same uh, um, observed in many different frames of reference. And so if he called it the theory of invariance, not the theory of relativity, that would have been an equally good description okay. of what he actually discovered, mm-hmm. but would have uh, uh, stymied those uh, inappropriate uh, right. extensions but, I mean, of you know, even Stephen, outside physics. Stephen but, Hawking but, talks about God, and you know, it, so I'm saying even when people are dismissing the idea, it's, it's, a, it's a word, it's a concept that somehow finds its way in, even to a scientific vocabulary. Well, I think it's... Uh, it's, it's be- it's better if they don't use it. I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I think because uh, um, right. uh, I think they they mean different different things different things by it, and I think it only it only misleads um, people uh, if uh, uh, if it is used in a rather uh, ill-informed and unsophisticated way by some scientists. Well, let me ask you this: when you are participating in a Church of England service and yes. the word God is in those in prayers in the Book of Common Prayer that you recite um, as part yes. of a community. You know, what... Uh, you're right, all of us. I mean, everyone, uh, anthropomorph... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't pronounce this. There's an mm. anthropomorphic tendency. You know, we, we imagine something mm. that's close to human experience. I mean, what do you, what do you imagine when, when you read um, that I, word I just God? can't imagine anything. Okay. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, um, it seems to me that uh, um, we uh, are part of this world, many aspects of which are mysterious. Uh, perhaps the most mysterious uh, is uh, that we exist and are conscious and able to wonder about how we came to be here. Um, but uh, uh, I regard the rest as a mystery, um, and perhaps it'll have to await the evolution of some species more advanced than humans to make more sense of it. So uh, it is just a mystery to me. Hmm. You just mentioned consciousness, which is uh, which is part of what makes us think about something like mm-hmm. God or want to understand the nature of stars. Um, just curious, you know, that is, I see that as one of these huge frontiers um, of our time. Um, how, does, how do you, as an astrophysicist, a cosmologist, observe that development and think about its possibilities? Well, does it inform what you do and how you make sense of it all? Well, well again, I think uh, um, uh, the brain is the most complicated thing we know about in the universe, <laughs> and we are just beginning to understand it. And uh, there are lots of ideas, of course, um, but uh, uh, that is, in my view, you know, the um, uh, the sort of... Everest problem, as it were, mm. uh, the highest summit in uh, uh, studying the complexities of our world and uh, how far we will get in solving that, I don't know. But there are many mysteries still, obviously. But again, uh, the point I want to emphasise is that uh, we should not be surprised that there are many mysteries because uh, uh, we, we are just beginning and the world is very complicated uh, and our brains may not be up to solving all of them. Mm. I, and I think, and I just want to say I think it's quite remarkable for you as someone who does have some sense of what happens in galaxies far, far away to, to still call the brain this, this Everest um, of, of science. Well, it is. It's far more complicated, yes. Mm. Mm. I want to ask you, is there, is there anything we haven't talked about, anything um, or any place that we touched on and, and you didn't get to finish a thought? Um, um, well, I think we've had a fascinating conversation, yeah. but I could go on for hours. I'm very happy to go on chatting. <laughs> it has been <laughs> a fascinating... But your listeners may have limited patience. Well, no, it has been a fascinating conversation. And I, I just want to look back at my notes and... Um, 
see if there's uh, anything we didn't. I mean, it's been fantastic. Um, let's see. I think we we really did. Um, well, let me just ask you this final question. Um, we 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 have talked about technology in many contexts in terms of speeding up human evolution, um, mm-hmm. the tools and instruments that it gives you uh, to do your science. Um, I also kind of want to ask you the same question I just asked about, you know, the field of the study of consciousness. And how has this emergence of technology as we know it, you know, how does that... Uh, Maybe you've answered this question already, but how how does how does that then enlarge your imagination, um, change your imagination, perhaps in ways you didn't expect, mm-hmm. as someone who studies the cosmos? Yes. Well, first, it's important that there is a sort of symbiosis between technology and science. I mean, there's a an old and now discredited right. idea that. Uh, uh, scientific discoveries are made and then they're applied to technology. It's not like that because uh, uh, the technology um, allows us to do new experiments and discover new science so there's a kind of symbiosis and in particular in my subject uh, which uh, depends on the technology of, uh, uh, of telescopes and uh, spacecraft etc. Uh, it's a technology which has allowed us to make the discoveries and also of course the computers which have allowed us to uh, uh, um, analyze the the data and do uh modeling so there's a there's a symbiosis and i think if we look ahead uh then uh we are going to see huge further advances in um computer technology and robotics and miniaturization um and uh, uh this is going to uh enhance our intuition in many ways i mean already uh the fact that we can um, do experiments in our computer and uh, play around uh, on a computer like in computer games is a way of uh, developing our intuition. It's an aid to thought. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about us uh, continuing to uh, develop a deeper understanding of the natural world is that we'd be aided uh, not just by, um, obviously, more precise and elaborate instruments, but by... Uh, um, uh, these uh, um, interfaces between uh, our own brain um, and some silicon brain, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, which are going to, to help us. Uh, and these uh, uh, interactions will become more closer, more close and more sophisticated. And I think that's uh, going to be a fairly rapid change if we just think of how much uh, there's been development just in the last 10 years. I'd also just love. I mean, the other thing technology does is it it makes probably for with ill potential and good. It it creates a new possibility for the interface between large scientific ideas. And I mean, this egalitarian pull of the technology of a technology can work in this way as well. I I loved um I loved the story you told about, uh, and I think this is how something can be gained in popular translation that then can help then can be valuable to scientists. You told a story about Robert Wilson at Bell Labs detecting weak microwaves that are a relic of the Big Bang, but that he didn't appreciate the full import of what he'd done until he read a journalist's description of what he had detected as the afterglow of creation. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, um, that raises two points. Uh, One is that, of course, uh, uh, scientists... um, uh, 
obviously are aware of the big problems, but they don't tackle the big problems head on. Uh, they work on a problem mm. which they think they can solve. Um, uh, Peter Medawa, one of my scientific heroes, said that uh, uh, no scientists get credit for failing to solve problems beyond their competence. They earn at best the kind of contempt reserved for utopian politicians. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, scientists tend to work on a sort of bite-sized small problem. But the occupational risk then is that they forget uh, that uh, their small problem is worthwhile only because it's helping to illuminate the big picture. And I thought that anecdote about Robert Wilson was rather nice because he made one of the greatest discoveries of the century. But the way he did it was by uh, tinkering with uh, um, the, um, uh, the antennae of a, of a radio dish and making yeah. sure he'd got rid of all the background, etc. He was doing <laughs> detailed technical things. And, uh, uh, and he was so focused, obviously, on doing that, because that was his expertise, that uh, it didn't really sink in what a great discovery he'd made. And, and so, so that's why I think it is important for scientists to um, uh, engage with the public, because... Uh, if you talk um, to a general audience, then the questions they ask are, of course, the big questions. They don't mm. care about these mm. tiny technical right. details. Uh, and uh, uh, if we talk to the public, they remind us that the big questions are important and also they remind us that most of those big questions haven't yet been solved. Uh, mm. We've made progress in the small um, uh, components of the question, but we haven't solved the big ones. So I think that is uh, uh, an, an important lesson. Well, Professor Reese, thank you so much. This has been really fantastic. Um, I've got, sorry, I'm seeing a producer uh, ask a question behind the glass. Let me just listen in my headphones for a minute. Um, two questions. Mm-hmm. One is that he, had, he stent, uh, stated how he's had an affinity for Confuci- Confucianism. Yeah. That's kind of, that's something interesting, might be appealing. And also, I'm just kind of curious that what we know is we're receiving a lot of atheist, non-believers, unchurched, mm-hmm. who respond to us, and they're they're kind of longing for places to talk about that wonder yeah. and mystery. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if maybe um, if he's aware of dialogues going on out there in spaces okay. and uh, mm-hmm. ways of talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, just two quick questions, you mentioned that you... Um, you're somewhat attracted to Confucianism. Is that a... No, I didn't really mean to say that. Okay. I just meant that... Uh, <laughs> that is your... uh, uh, yeah. uh, I, I grew up in a culture uh, dominated by uh, um, Christianity, which, of course, has a dogmatic theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, if i uh, grown up in the East, mm-hmm. um, I would... Uh, uh, be exposed to Confucianism. And of course, uh, let's not forget that that is, in a sense, a religion, but it doesn't have any of the ingredients that uh, uh, the Abrahamic religions have. Right, it doesn't have that transcendent component. No, no, Mm -hmm. it doesn't. And and Mm -hmm. I think this is is why I was perhaps slightly uh, uh, reluctant to uh, uh, get involved when you talk about God, because, of course, uh, um, Confucianism is thought to be a religion, but it has no afterlife and no God. It's a right. way of li- it's a way of life and a way of looking at the world. Yeah. And so I think if we are talking about religion, uh, let's not forget that that is a far broader concept than uh, uh, one which is um, uh, based on the religion we're most familiar with here in the West. So uh, the, the final thing I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, I, uh, this program I do is is called On Being, but we we have very much a focus on we say meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. And of course, our religious mm-hmm. traditions are carriers of traditions of meaning and and mm-hmm. moral mm-hmm. deliberation. And they are they are these vast repositories, um, our central repositories. Um, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of listeners who are atheist and agnostic, and you know they have ethical lives and and they have spiritual lives. I think it depends on how you define that. But they're asking these questions of meaning. Um, 
it, it has felt in recent years that that there, that it was hard to uh, that there wasn't much middle ground. There's middle ground in people's lives, but in our public life, right? There's the the new atheist revival, or there's religion. Um, I think that you are very clearly an atheist. You, you know, you say you you don't you even wish scientists wouldn't use the word God as much, even um, m- metaphorically. Um, mm. But I I think you you are also arguing for some kind of uh, different space uh, for seeing the relationship between these things, or at least defusing the idea that it, the, the rela- relationship is adversarial. I wonder if you would just say yes. some, speak to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say two things. I mean, first, uh, there are some very distinguished scientists who do have uh, traditional uh, religious beliefs. Um, I I know a number of them. Uh, I find it hard to understand how they can adhere to these beliefs in the way they do, but plainly they do. Uh, They have these beliefs, and we must uh, respect them, and we should not uh, uh, in any sense believe that uh, they're less good scientists for that reason. So we we should... uh, uh, um, except that there are many uh, scientists who do have religious beliefs of all kind, as well as many who don't. But the other point I'd make is that um, uh, even many of us who don't have religious beliefs um, uh, favour the idea of, as it were, peaceful coexistence. Um, Stephen Jay Gould had a rather uh, pretentious name, for this called non-overlapping magisteria. Right. Um, And uh, uh, this is really the idea that uh, uh, you... You can have a religious discourse and you can have a scientific discourse. I mean, science is uh, um, uh, uh, an area of mental activity uh, which is based on uh, experiments in mathematics. And I would say just as mathematics is the language of science, um, uh, music is the language of religion. It's a quite different kind of thing. Um, And uh, uh, I think uh, I am a person who... uh, um, believes in um, uh, peaceful coexistence between these two different realms. And that's okay, of course, uh, provided one is not dealing with creationism, etc., where uh, um, uh, people uh, are led by some uh, religious dogma to uh, make claims that are manifestly incorrect about the real world. One has to fight against that that strongly. And it's rather interesting that there was a, a survey done of um, members of the Royal Society, which is a British uh, Academy of Sciences. Well, August of was, institution, which you uh, Of which mm-hmm. I was recently president. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, it was uh, um, a rather incomplete survey, only about a quarter responded, so I don't know how uh, uh, reliable it is. But of those who responded, um, only a small minority were um, believers in a personal God in a traditional way. But uh, more than half of them uh, believed in peaceful coexistence. Okay. Uh, so, in other words, um, the sort of uh, um, strident view that one should be hostile to religion, uh, a strident view which is espoused by a few high-profile scientists, um, is one which they, of course, uh, uh, deeply share, um, but they should not uh, regard that as being typical of uh, uh, non-believing scientists. Many non-believing scientists, like myself, um, do not wish to... Uh, um, uh, attack um, and deride religion in the same way. And indeed, um, uh, one of my disagreements with these people is that uh, um, I regard uh, fundamentalism, uh, both um, uh, Christian and uh, Islamic and New Age, as being a real danger to the world. And I therefore think we need all the allies we can muster against it. Hmm. And I would see the mainstream uh, religions, the religions that have no problem whatever with science as being our allies 
mm. in this uh, uh, in, in this battle. I mean, you know, as as we can get. So uh, so to rubbish uh, the leaders of the mainstream religions. Um, like in my case, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, seem to me uh, uh, um, counterproductive from any point of view. And you know, I'm not sure you would take it this far, but uh, uh, as I as I suggested before, I I actually think that your encouragement as a scientist, what did you say, a citizen scientist, for, of mm-hmm. more rigorous, vigorous public deliberation of some of the really big moral issues that scientific discovery raises. Um, as I said, I, I actually think that, that 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 theological thinkers and people who mind these vast repositories of moral deliberation that our traditions have carried forward in time, I mean, in, in a way, you are, it invites and asks them to play a more vigorous role. Well, it does, but of course, most of the scientists who uh, uh, believe it's important to engage in these public discussions um, are sort of secular scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, th- th- I think in many cases they have made uh, a more successful effort than, uh, uh, for instance, the Catholic Church, uh, which has, um, uh, on environmental uh, and other issues, uh, not been on on side with some of the uh, concerns of the scientists. Mm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So I guess we won't resolve that in this conversation, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's been really delightful speaking with you and... Uh, I thank you for your time, and we'll let you know what's happening with this and uh, send you a CD. Okay, well, I hope you get something useful. Oh, yeah, out of we all absolutely that. got Good. something useful. Yes, okay. thank you so much. Right, goodbye. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.